this one and two more. And then that'll be season three. Oh, I thought you were going to say this one's going to be short. <laughs> it might be. We'll see. Okay. All right. But we're we're just getting started. Just turned on the mics. We're gonna we're gonna see if we can make this one. Make sure it's under two hours. <laughs> We've <laughs> okay. only been a couple minutes over for the past few weeks, but so okay. but 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 this week for real. Or I guess we'll see. There is a lot to talk about. Uh, we're we're gonna wrap up in the fourth movement, talking a little bit about you know, visions for Triloquy looking forward as we get, you know, toward the end of of season three. But to get us started this week, Scott, we got to rewind and go back to radio. Mm -hmm. There's been some local drama, you know, or or maybe the current is a national service. You're going to have to tell me in this opening, you're going to have to teach me and everybody listening a lot about the current. So first of all, what is what is the current as a radio stream? That is uh, eighty nine point three in the Twin Cities. It used to be KSJN, as I understand it. Okay. And then ninety nine point five was actually the um, Collegeville one, I believe. I'm not sure. Anyway, the format swapped, and that's how Classical ended up on ninety nine point five. And the current is what you would call an adult album alternative station. So. Uh, they they tend to follow the indie trends, uh, the indie pop, indie rock trends, that sort of thing. And just for clarification, is this local only? Because I feel like, shout out to Pete. One time I feel like Pete was telling me he tuned into The Current sometimes. Maybe you can do Their so Their web stream has or... a big presence. Yeah. And, you know, through Stitcher and, and the app. Yeah, we've got people all around the country that, that listen to and contribute to The Current. Well, one of their flagship hosts turned in... The microphone turned in the headphones last week and it's sort of been going around in the local news. Again, I asked because I don't know how much uh, national impact the current has if people even care about the current nationally. You know, we're talking about this stuff here, but there, there's there's still some things to to unpack. So, you know, we'll, we'll just briefly speak to some of this. I'm reading from recentlyheard.com. says, Mary Lucia cites concerns about equity and fair treatment of all of my sisters as reason for her abrupt departure from 89 Point three, the current. There are a lot of radio stations, public radio stations, all across the country, of course, all around the world, and a lot of movement when it comes to certain hosts leaving or retiring or quitting or getting fired, whatever it is. Um, help the folks understand why this incident is significant. Uh, how Mary Lucia isn't just another radio host, at least not locally anyway. In public radio, it's a little bit different than commercial and it's less transient. People tend to uh, stay at a gig in public radio longer than they do in commercial. Uh, I know I knew commercial DJs that never really unpacked. Now, to that end, Mary Lucia was one of the founding DJs of The Current 17 years ago. And uh, she is rock and roll royalty in the Twin Cities. Uh, just an encyclopedia of music and more uh, uh, importantly, local music. Just a huge loss. Uh, what a resource we just lost. When people talk about public radio, most folks would refer to their public radio station as their NPR station, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's important to note that Public radio is more than news. And, you know, for most folks, if they want to listen to, to Western classical on the radio, they have to go to the public radio station. But, you know, a lot of public radio stations go into uh, jazz where I started. Mm-hmm. It was a classical and jazz station. Uh, there's a uh, there are bluegrass public radio stations all across the country. But as you described this one, it's AAA adult album uh, alternative. Right. 
it, why why do you think that is uh why, why it's significant to have that sort of music funneled through public radio listener supported radio is so-called triple a one of those sort of subgenres of music that needs that kind of support you know the 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 uh, aesthetics of music that you're not going to hear on the top 40 or the big time commercial stations that, what is it about that music yeah, and public radio there, there's there's that aspect of it and for the current when i first got here it was hyper local um, so local real, bands, yeah, local really, artists. really supporting the community. You would hear local bands that, you know, didn't have a national presence or anything like that, and it was exhilarating, you know. To uh, also the uh, the DJs were very, very diverse in their own skill sets and their knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, whenever you heard Mark Wheat, you knew that you were going to get, you know, some great Brit rock or electronic stuff. Bill DeVille was, uh, he still is, you know, your uh, your roots and blues and things like that. Everybody seemed to have like their little bailiwick, you know. Mm. So for folks who, uh, again, aren't local or maybe even just for the folks who are local, maybe I should say, uh, do you have anything to offer or to speak to when it comes to Mary Lucia stepping down? Well, I'll, I'll have a, a, a link to the article in, in the description. She cites some uh, pay inequities and mm-hmm. some other uh, misogynistic things happening there at The Current. And just to be super clear for people, The Current is one of the uh, radio streams, radio services offered under that big American public media umbrella. So, you know, I... Sure. I, everything is... Go ahead. Yeah, everything is very hush-hush, as you know, with uh, personnel issues. Um, I would recommend that everybody go over to Spotify and check out the playlist of her last shift. It is an absolute treatise. But not you sending and, people to Spotify, though. Um, I think that it's <laughs> elsewhere as after, well. After I just had to <laughs> yeah, stake no, my I, claim against Spotify on my platform. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, but it's uh, it's an incredible mix, uh, all of her own devising and very pointed in in spots and other spots very irreverent and all this and it just shows her depth and breadth of knowledge of this music i do not and then you know just a couple hours after she was done it was announced that the program director is no longer there and nobody knows anything i don't know anything about it but i will tell you that i don't think this is it for mary because her presence is still on the website. You can't find the old program director anywhere. Sure. But Mary's stuff is still up there. I don't think I I don't think Mary's completely out. Well well, I, I don't I don't want to get too much into this because again, it's very local. There are folks who, you know, have no stake in this. Uh, but let me offer this. So when I heard the news, I didn't know what to say or or how to react or or even if to care, because if someone is quitting, citing problematic things going on at American public media, well, I mean, what am I supposed to say? I was I was fired from the place for trying to do certain things. So, mm-hmm. of, of course, you know, my my opinion can't be uh, completely neutral or anything like that. But I think uh, there there's something to be said about the arms of public radio. Uh, that we don't always think about those AAA stations and and how that uh, sort of thing, you know, sort of comes to the top of the news sometimes, especially when folks are calling out these institutions and and uh, stepping back and doing all that sort of thing as as Mary Lucia has. Uh, it gets us into this week's downbeat, thinking about 
radio as one of these mediums, not only for music, but for narratives and even for change. Certainly when we talk about uh, the the so-called classical arts. Um, so this week I wanted to offer a downbeat, Scott, that Features you. You did an interview for your uh, former radio station, KVNO. What would, remind the folks or tell the folks the context of, of this interview, why, why this happened. They're coming up on their 50th anniversary and putting together some special programming. And they did interviews with hosts past. And I, I was, um, I think I was, the th- yeah, the third person in line for this particular morning show. so Yeah, and, and this is what you had to offer in that interview. Let's take a listen. I really fell in love with the whole idea of public radio itself. The idea that what you do means so much to a listener that they would give you a couple bucks a month in order to pay for it. That sort of reciprocal relationship was uh, very powerful. Scott eventually moved. So, Say more about doing something that means a lot to people. Are you talking about playing their favorite song on the radio or is it something more? No, I'm talking about building relationships. Say more. I'm talking about um, finding ways to connect with someone over music like you might over a cup of coffee. Um, At KVNO, there was the, the, the fact that I knew the town and so I was able to get you know real personal and make those relationships as a national host it's a little more difficult you got to be more generic sure be more you know you can't be too local in that little clip you talked about not only meaning something to someone but doing that so much so that they might want to give you a a few dollars Mm -hmm. i remember the first time i felt obliged to call in to the pledge drive and give to public radio do you remember the the first time that you really felt like you know what let me give them $15 $15 a month and get a tote bag or whatever. You remember comic mug. relief? <laughs> I uh, Maybe, maybe. Tell me more. So it was sort of like Farm Aid, you know, Live Aid. It was a, a concert that would benefit, you know, the homeless or the okay. farmers or something like that. Yeah. And comic relief was a charity and, you know, sort of a telethon thing where, you know, dozens of comics would come out and do a bit. You give a couple bucks and, it, you know, it was like a telethon. And there was something about that that pulled your heartstrings enough for you to pick up the phone. I was laughing through the tears (laughs) or crying through the laughter. For me, it was during a uh, membership drive. Shout out to Melanie Dodson down uh, in Knoxville. I started public radio uh, in the latter half of 2016. And like my first week was during a pledge drive. So I had to learn really quickly what was going on and what was the purpose of this. I remember driving into work one morning when uh, my then colleague Melanie was already on the air and she was pitching and she gave a break. I wish I could remember exactly what she was talking about, but what she said fits so well into um, the Marquez Donzon number two. Actually, let me uh, play a little bit of that so folks know what I'm talking about. So I suppose Melanie was talking about something when it comes to, you know, Latin flavor and Mexican music or, or something. And just the way it was laid out and the way it was contextualized for me to think about music, even classical music and even classical music over the public radio as something that really could engage more than that Western European aesthetic of things. See, I was just starting my journey, but having that seed planted in my mind 
in an applicable way, in a, in a way that everyone could touch and feel and 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 listen to in this way. That's when I was like, you know what? She's on to something. Let me let me call in and do my part to make sure that this this is sustained. And this is I hope no one hears me asking y'all to call anybody's radio station to, you know, uh, donate some money because you need to make sure that that institution is actually speaking to you and your musical sensibilities before you do any of that. All of this is to say that when we talk about the current and what happened to Mary Lucia, when we talk about uh, your start in radio and what really made you fall in love with it, I think all of that has led to so many different things. You know, think about the digital content that has become uh, uh, an essential part of a public radio station that didn't exist maybe when you got started. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I think about the way even public radio institutions have latched on to podcasts and created their own podcast to reach out even further. Triloquy started as a American public media podcast, mm -hmm. you know? So when, when I, when I think about all of these things, you know, I hope everyone throughout the arts, you know, wherever you land in the arts, I hope that you can consider and understand the uh, consequential nature, the, the very impactful nature of public media, specifically public radio. When most folks hear what they call classical music, they're not hearing it in a concert hall or, or in a recital hall. They're hearing it over radio. And more likely than not, it's a public radio station. Mm -hmm. um, when I was getting into radio, Scott, there wasn't a whole bunch of overlap between professionals in the so-called classical arts and professionals in radio. They existed, but today I'm seeing more and more uh, folks who came up as musicians being invited in to do hmm. radio shows or do radio specials. It's becoming more and more of a thing. And it's one of the reasons why I still believe in the medium of podcasting. This is different than radio for many different reasons, but I just think that audio conversation or that just audio media uh, in general has a huge opportunity. It's proven to be consequential in the past when it comes to um, other sorts of activism and, and change making. And I think in the arts, if we can just remember how much people chatter and talk about and pay attention to uh, public radio, if we can just always remember that, I think we have a chance of really making those big, big, big um, changes that we're looking to see in the arts. Before we uh, jump in, you know, I just want to tie a bow on the uh, issue with Mary Lucia. I know what it's like to be separated from a job and to be in the middle of a, a media, whatever, media firestorm and seeing a lot of people talk about you and talk a lot about your situation and getting stuff wrong or making assumptions and mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. But so I, I, I can't speak to any of that. I'm, I'm thinking about you, um, Mary Lucia. I'm also going to say that I know what it feels like to wish more people were speaking up. Mm -hmm. And that's not a slight or a sub to anyone in particular, but I just wanted to make sure that I spent a little bit of time here on this platform speaking to you know that feeling, knowing what it feels like to stand up for something at your workplace, especially a, a radio institution, and feeling like no one is really having your back. All of these colleagues who will say hey to you or have coffee with you or, or chit chat with you at the water cooler who are all of a sudden silent when it comes to something like this. I only met Mary Lucia once when I was working up there at uh, American Public Media. I was out on the uh, on the smoking deck and I introduced myself. Oh, I'm new. My name's Garrett. You know, what, what do you do here? And she gave one of those, you know, 
oh, oh, how how adorable. You have no idea who I am, you know, and, and not in a snobby or snotty way, but it, it seemed refreshing for her to talk to someone who wasn't asking her for an autograph, you know, so. My, or my, fanboying. Right, right. So my interactions with Mary Lucia are great. You know, I don't know her personally, but I will ride for her and and say good for you here on, on my platform. Sometimes, you know, we forget that there's a huge responsibility in having the public's ear. So many of us media folks, especially live radio folks, you know, I, I think we often take for granted that we have those people's ears. That's something that she did not take for granted through uh, her programming, especially on that final show, uh, through what she uh, stood up for mm-hmm. uh, during her time at The Current and what she'll stand up for in the future. Um, I, I I am one of the many people who can only hope and aspire you know, to be as influential as she was. And to get that started, I think we have to Keep a trill here on this on this podcast of ours. Let's jump in. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy Opus 148. Thank you to all of the returning listeners for continuing to support this show, to support this project, and to believe in the mission that we have of decolonizing classical music. If this is your first time checking out Triloquy, Triloquy is a podcast and an initiative that was built to take that phrase classical music and uh, apply it much more broadly. Classical music is much more than Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn, and the conversations that we can have surrounding it can be so so much broader in addition to the music that we uh, approximate to that phrase. So you can learn more about Triloquy on our website, triloquy.org. You can also contribute there and to check out uh, past opuses, just visit triloquy.org. In addition to all of y'all's support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution here to St. Paul, Minnesota, making sure that artists have a means of creating a living and a life. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. I want to send a special shout out and thank you to Central Presbyterian Church here in uh, St. Paul. Scott, a church supported Triloquy. I never thought, you know, and, and, let, me, and, and let me just pull over for a second because <laughs> <laughs> back during Black History Month, I went uh, to to play a few tunes on uh, on bassoon, and uh, their house pianist was there backing me up, fully prepared, giving all of the left hand on on the lift every voice, just you know, really giving it up, and. I'm I'm nobody's Christian. I say that a lot on this podcast, but to have a church that's really interested in shifting narratives when it comes to arts and music, it's really incredible. So I just want to send a huge shout out to everyone over at uh, Central Presbyterian for your continued support. They're looking uh, for a musician in residence. I'll read a little bit here. It says, Central Presbyterian Church is hiring a musician in residence for a 10-month residency starting in September as they deepen and broaden their understanding of Black sacred musics through shared music making and engagement. So we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the field shouts and the spirituals. This church is trying to invest in, in uh, upping their game 
mm-hmm. you know, and upping their education. And they want to make sure they have someone in the building that they're going to support and make sure that happens. So if you're interested or know anyone who might be interested, uh, point them over to centralforgood.org. Really incredible folks over there. Thank you so much to uh, Jennifer, who does all the music things over there, and everyone at uh, Central Presbyterian. Uh, another uh, reminder that Adrian Dunn and the Rise Orchestra of Chicago will be performing Emancipation on Friday. I believe that will be April 29th, uh, I believe. More information uh, on that in the description of this. I want to give a a congrats to the Gateways Orchestra. We're going to talk about them a little bit in the first movement. A shout out to the Twin Cities Freedom Band uh, for an excellent community band concert. I went to a community band concert over the weekend. Great, Great to hear the sounds of the people. You know, (laughs) just, you know, just freedom, you know, not so. And I I, I can I can speak shadily, but it's it's more than right notes and intonation. It's that unity of spirit that was really moving me. So I I just wanted to make sure I gave a shout out to the uh, I think it's actually the Minnesota Freedom Band, a a community band uh, sent that centers queer people and uh, gender divergent people and and all. of It's really incredible. uh, That sort of arts that's going on. And then finally, I just want to send a quick shout out to the uh, Brewing Channel. Collaborative for a uh, a successful gala here in the Twin Cities, Scott. It's all sorts of organizations in the change making work, and one of them is trying to make changes in the in the area of brewing. We'll, we'll we had a collaboration set up right before COVID yeah. that all went to hell, but we'll have to uh, get back to it. But I wanted to give them a shout out uh, here, and uh, thank you to all of y'all. And let's get into Movement One. All right, so Scott, yesterday, uh, we're recording this on Monday, so yesterday on Sunday, the Gateways Festival Orchestra made their Carnegie Hall debut, a really exciting time for the for the arts industry. Uh, it was a sold-out show. Everyone that I, uh, I heard from said that it was an, an incredible show. I bought a ticket, and I panicked at the last minute thinking about COVID and flying on planes, and they no just released they just released the mask mandate on the plane. So folks are going to be coughing all over everywhere where I'm trying to take a nap on the plane. So mm-hmm. anyway, I decided to mail my ticket uh, to Caesar. Shout out to Caesar, and yeah. he he found uh, someone who could uh, go to the show. But uh, I just wanted to uh, give them a shout out and a col- uh, and a congratulations by shining a light on a, on an article from Billboard.com. It says you may not know Anthony Parmther, but you've heard his conducting before. So earlier this year, Scott, of course, we lost uh, the now late maestro Michael Morgan, who has been the Gateway's music festival uh, music director for years, since the since the very beginning. So finding someone to uh, fill his spot in Carnegie Hall was a real you know, big deal. And that this was something that was going to be really important, uh, for, you know, to make sure the selection was correct. Uh, as a member of the, um, artistic, artistic committee, I definitely threw Anthony Parther's name into the hat. Uh, you know, I'll just quickly tell the story. When I moved to Los Angeles, my teacher, shout out to Judy Farmer. She was like, well, you know, there's this black man who's a bassoonist and he's a conductor and he really wants to uh, get in contact with you. And you could tell Scott that my teacher was (laughs) a little weird about, having 
the black student at the time at mm. USC. I think Sidney Hobson was there too. Shout out to him. But having the black student and having to tell the black student that it's another black person who happens to be in music in Los Angeles. And that, you know, maybe you should, maybe, you'll, maybe you could have a play date. <laughs> I, re- I, re- I remember her saying, and listen, Garrett, if, because she studied and worked in Austria. She said, listen, Garrett, if an Austrian musician comes through town, I'll make the point to go through and shake his hand as well. So she was trying to, you know, make it chill for me. Like, mm. look, I'm not doing this just because da da da. Anyway, one of the reasons that Anthony wanted to connect with me was because I'm black. You know, he's one of those Los Angeles area uh, music directors and, and music people that when a black musician comes into town, he tries to connect and give them opportunities. It's through Anthony that um, I got to play with the uh, Southeast Symphony of Los Angeles, you know, this historic black orchestra and, and have uh, other gigs. So not only is he out here uh, connecting the community in a way that makes him eligible and qualified for this historic performance at Carnegie Hall. He's someone who has chops on the movie music front as well. I'll listen, uh, I'll, uh, I'll read a little bit of this. It says, as a conductor of both film scores and traditional orchestras across the country, Anthony Parther has a fairly singular career. He's conducted the score recordings for some of the biggest films of the past couple of years, including Tenet, Encanto, and Turning Red, as well as the Disney Plus streaming hits The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett. You've never met Anthony. You know, I, I can I can sing his praises all day, but you are familiar with his conducting and, and the way that he he runs an orchestra. Yeah. What do you think about that? Uh, the music connected to the Mandalorian and the book of Boba Fett. I know that especially the Mandalorian was a show that you stand. How 100%. much what, what role did the music play in your really becoming a fan? Of, it was of, a char- of it was a character in the show. Um, whenever you hear that theme there was this feeling of, you know, the Mandalorian's theme. Whenever you hear that come in, you knew that everything was going to be okay or mm-hmm. someone was about to get their ass kicked. Sure. One of the two. <laughs> sure. But no, what I'm saying is that um, it, it's a it's a rare thing to be able to create lore the way that he does with the music. Mm-hmm. That you you can hear a backstory even though you don't know it yet. You right. know what I mean? Right. That's that's rare. One of the big uh, critiques of those scores, especially The Mandalorian, was that we're in this John Williams thematic universe mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, and we have something that sounds very different. Was that a was that a thing for you? Especially considering that you were there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You went to the theaters to see Star Wars Episode Four. Mm-hmm. This score, the these scores that Anthony conducts, are very much different than than the 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 brass fanfares of, yeah. of decades past. I don't think I had any expectations to be ruined. Yeah. But uh, I was just really pleasantly surprised and and then as a matter of fact I waited to find out is somebody going to is somebody going to come after him for the way he used those yeah. those flutes. Uh-huh. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, a music by Ludwig Göransson, of course. Right. Yeah. So maybe we'll see, but it's definitely a vibe. You know, love it. And he's got, you know, Ludwig Gorenson has gotten the the black people stamp of approval, I suppose, after Black Panther and all of his work with Childish Gambino. So and you if know, somebody want to come after him, uh, I know, keep us out of it. I wasn't <laughs> as moved by the book of Boba Fett as really? I was by the Mandalorian. And in my and, mind, until the Mandalorian got into the show, well, right? <laughs> but I I have to say that the theme is the best part about the book of Boba Fett. Oh yeah, you like that thing? I do. Yeah. That that sort of uh call and response sort of shout. 
Love it. Well, that sound was carved and and um, nurtured and and created in part by Anthony Parther. I want to read a little bit more uh, from this article. Uh, in a quote here, Anthony says, a lot of what Gateways is doing, back to the Gateways Orchestra, he says, a lot of what Gateways is doing successfully is sort of making the classical music community more representative of the diverse pool of talent that we know exists in our country, but is not always showcased. He goes on to say, it's been a life-changing experience to be a part of that. Uh, we we talk about uh, black orchestras and, and all of that stuff all the time, Scott, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I just really think it's it's worth underscoring that moving forward when we talk specifically about diversity, finding ways to diversify staff, diversify orchestras, the talent is there. If we can have a whole orchestra of black people, not BIPOC people, not people of color, you know, not that of black people, if mm-hmm. we can have a whole orchestra doing that and that whole orchestra is up to the the quality to, and we'll, you know, maybe I need to speak to that in the fourth movement, but for now, to the quality, the so-called quality of getting into Carnegie Hall. You know, that's a, that's a big deal, which means there should be no orchestras out here with no black people talking about they don't know where the talent is and 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 X, Y and Z It's really important uh, to note. And, and I'm glad that Anthony was there to, you know, again, uh, be there in the stead of Michael Morgan and and mm. bring on this uh, incredible and incredible event. I know WQXR uh, out of New York, they streamed it live. I don't, do, do you know anything about um, APM airing some of it? I'm sure the recordings will, will make it through I eventually. I don't. Yep. Well, um, so again, shout out to uh, everyone in the Gateways Festival Orchestra. You know, last week, and, and just to quickly, as we transition, just to shine a quick light on what I was talking about last week in the uh, final movement, I was talking to more and more people after my statements last week on Triloquy concerning, you know, not everyone can be there on stage. And that doesn't mean that you're not an important part of of what's going on out here in the world. Uh, I think we need to think about ways in which the orchestra as a construct, as a thing, can be formed into something that's a little bit more amoebus, something that can uh, be more inclusive or or not so exclusive, I think, uh, really is the is is the deal. Um, because there were a, a lot of people who who felt left out. Mm. And I'm and I'm I understand that feeling and I'm sorry for that feeling. But if I can just reiterate anything here, as I said last week. All of these things fit together. You know, we need the black Suzuki elementary school string teachers so that someone can take violin and grow up to be a part of something like this. We need the uh, very provocative conversations about folks like the Honorable Louis Farrakhan being at gateways in 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 its birth, you know, at, at the very beginning, being a representative for not just some of black people, but the diversity of black thought, black religious thought, black cultural thought, and all of that, you know, all of those folks coming together to, to realize this thing. So there's so many pieces that play into this. So um, I, I hope everyone will keep that in mind. I know Lee Kuntz, who, uh, who runs the ship over there at Gateways, you know, he's always got something to stress about and, you know, all, sure. all sorts of stuff uh, going on. So, well, you've been you know, behind the podium. Now you know what the stress is like. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, you know, shout out to all of the Gateways Festival musicians, past and present and future. And, you know, to folks who may not find themselves with groups like the Gateways Festival Orchestra, your work 
is important too. We we all need to come up together so that we can, you know, eventually make this orchestral music scene one that looks very diverse where it's not unheard of to see a, an all black orchestra, you know, much less a diverse orchestra. If that can be a part of what Carnegie Hall presents, you know, in a special occasion like this, I feel like we can figure out diverse orchestras for the experience every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night and Sunday matinee. And then once we really get into that, we have to start to talk about, you know, the different musics that come through. Mm. It's not only about a diverse orchestra or an all black orchestra playing Rachmaninoff. I've played Rachmaninoff with Gateways. Uh, shout out to Stuart Goodyear, who was, who was on the solo piano. It was a transformative experience. There's also more that can be done. The Gateways Festival Orchestra uh, premiered a piece by John Batiste at Carnegie called I Can. I can't wait for the mm-hmm. recordings of that to come through. I haven't uh, heard it yet, at least not uh, as of the uh, recording of this. But anyway, all of that to say that we're getting somewhere. There are, there are things happening. It's very exciting to see, and we all play a unique role in it. Shout out to Anthony Parther. Here's a, a bit of his conducting some of that Mandalorian score. You you wanted to hear a bit of the Tuscan Raiders. So let's, course, yeah. let's, let's, see what, let's see what they're talking about. There's a whole heritage in that track. Say more. Just you know the, the the rhythm that sounds familiar, but yet you but you can't quite place it. Played by instruments that maybe you think you've heard before, mm-hmm. but in this totally alien to you sort yeah. of sort of way that that just that creates backstory. Look at you being equitable in an intergalactic way. You said alien to you. <laughs> Let's incorporate some more of that language when we start wa- watching these Star Wars universe things. Shout out to Scott. Listen, listen. Into season three, he Scott is getting y'all together with his language. You see? Anyway. <laughs> well, let's uh let's go from a galaxy far, far away up Someone to Canada. Little north. Yeah. Go go how, how about you uh uh, lead us off here. We we have something from cbc.ca. So while you're um, streaming on the platform that you've agreed to get some ads from, or maybe just watching regular old TV, you've probably seen this Infinity commercial with also Sprach Zarathustra being played in a in a kind of slipshot sort of way. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Say more. Um, clearly, the band playing it uh, doesn't quite have. Uh, the technical skill and you soon realize that there is a soccer mom of some kind in this infinity rolling up the window to get away from the sound now okay you said that there is some sort of band attempting to play also Sprague Zarathustra you gotta be more specific this is what kind of ensemble 
It's a, it is a grade school band. Okay, it is a youth ensemble. So what we have in this headline from cbc.ca is New Brunswick Youth Orchestra posts masterful clapback to car ad that rubbed them the wrong way. So just as uh, Scott described, you have this commercial where a youth orchestra is attempting to play the Strauss. They're not sounding all of that great, which I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I think they have their bright spots. We have to, I, I don't want to go down, I don't want to chase the rabbit too far off the path, but going to this uh, community band concert on Sunday is really making me critique certain language when it comes to quality and, you know, up to snuff or all of these things. So you had youth playing, I guess in real life, it would be to the best of their ability. I guess the rub is they're painting this stereotype that young people can't sound beautiful on their instruments. You have mm-hmm. this orchestra of youth of uh, of uh, uh, a youth orchestra where they're not sounding so great. So, you know, the the woman rolls up the car window as to not hear that noise. Well, one um youth orchestra director had a bone to pick with that. Uh Ken McLeod uh during a 60-second video from his organization that was released last week um really called out the uh the organization, Infinity, he said, we felt because we're a leader in this space of children and youth music that it is our duty, maybe even our responsibility to somehow respond to this. Even though the Infinity commercial is tongue in cheek, there's still a tired old stereotype of youth and bad music. And so our message here is that our kids have amazing talent. I saw this commercial. Okay, and and on something I was streaming, and I definitely said something, you know, probably to Dell. Oh, that's a problem. Whatever I said, I love that there is a band or orchestra director in this case, a youth orchestra director that was not going. He said, "Oh no." He said, "You should have called this us." This is not going to stand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think it, uh, is the uh, benefit of youth orchestra directors? fighting back against these sorts of advertisements. They try to be funny. They, your, they do yourself, whatever they are, yeah. but, you know. Put yourself in the infinity. Would you go to that concert if you didn't know any of the kids in the band? Not if I didn't know any of the kids. Okay. You know, but I don't so, think that's the point that the no, orchestra director was making. No, but what I'm saying is, is that that commercial does put up that front, that this is something to be avoided. In fact, someone could probably read into this far enough to say oh yeah the there's there here's the the typical uh, suburban woman dropping her kids off and then waiting for it to be over in her car and that was the part of it for me because you know it's parents out here that like mine when i was a a kid you know making sacrifices and doing everything they could to be at these concerts oh, yeah. and all this stuff and here she is in the lap of luxury can't be bothered by you know, all of these younglings trying to play some Strauss or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so basically uh, the what the band director uh, went back and said uh, was, can you imagine a big company like that couldn't find a youth orchestra to play the music? They should have called us the New Brunswick Youth Orchestra. So I don't know. I, I thought that was a, a cute thing to uh, throw in here. Do you think uh, we'll today. see? A, do you think we'll see a companion commercial now? Do you think they'll respond? You think? Oh, do I think Infinity will apologize to the youth orchestra community? Are well, they going? Are they, are they going to update their campaign? <laughs> are they going to give all of the uh, youth orchestra some money for for what they have done? Because they could, mm. right? 
they could. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not. We're, it's not a question of if they could or not, but if they will right. or not. I don't know. I, I, I suppose we'll see. Go New Brunswick Youth Orchestra. Yeah, and uh, be sure that you know when you're when you're attending these concerts that and and let's let's quickly go here real quick, Scott. Where are we going? There was a a conversation some years ago that I remember about how recording. Speaking of radio, as we were getting to earlier, how recordings have ruined the live concert experience because we're used to hearing recording quality performances that have been mixed and mastered mm. and there have been 18 takes to do whatever and mm-hmm. and and la da da where do, where do you think we are with that conversation now do you do you still think that's a a a a valid thing to sort of complain about recordings are sullying up the live performance uh experience I don't know. I don't think so because, um, and let's I, and let's take it outside of Western I classical. Find, I mean, you know, the the artists that you love and you listen to their recordings all the time. Are you comparing the performance to those recordings, even subliminally? Maybe. What are you talking now about? Like expecting for the live show to sound like the album? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, that, I that just want to make sure I was following. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I would rather hear a performer actually do it than like lip sync along so that they could also dance. Right. Right. So those people who can do both, okay, like so we know Beyonce does, right? Okay. So she sings and performs. Of course. Okay, so we can't all hit that level. (laughs) (laughs) No, what I'm saying is is that I would rather hear the artist in that moment, that room, that group, connect with me, connect with me. So to hear those artists in the way that they're performing in that moment, I guess that means there has to be some sort of connection, mm-hmm. right? Or, or some sort of emotional investment. Sure. And I feel like that's the investment that has to be made. <laughs> Not necessarily, but the investment that a lot of people make when it comes to youth orchestra or listen to kids band programs and that sort of thing. You have that emotional connection. I think we can all spread our empathy broad enough to have an emotional connection that is thinking about these kids at the beginning of their journeys. There could be the next insert the blank. I'm not going to say a name because, you know, that could get problematic. (laughs) The the next Beyonce. There could Mm. be the next Beyonce somewhere in this orchestra. Uh, But just by writing off because it doesn't sound good to you and not acknowledging all parts of the process, I think it's 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 not really good for performer or listener. We talk about pageantry a lot when when you or you talk about pageantry a lot when you talk about brewing beer, how uh, you would put it all into growing cannabis whenever that is uh, you know uh, legal. Mm -hmm. The hop pouring the you you have all of the language pouring the hops into the bucket or or whatever you know. Know, that's a part of it. Every, you know, boil in the water, whatever. Mm-hmm. All of it is a part of it. And not all of the parts of it are drinking beer, but that doesn't mean the different parts of it aren't important. So sure. I sort of see the trajectory of a musician mm-hmm. in the same way. And it's and, and it's how we should, you know, see these musicians. Who is that ad for? For the for rich suburban, you know, the the, the people who were depicted, you know, the folks rolling up their <laughs> so windows. Do you think <laughs> so do you think they hit the mark? Are they gonna sell some infinities? I mean I think the people, and and this is the other thing, I think the people who really, and maybe I'm painting with too broad of a a brush, I feel like the folks who really care about changing up the dynamics and the stereotypes that were in that ad, they aren't in the, (laughs) the (laughs) infinity is not pointing the ads at us, you know, (laughs) but- 
Who knows? So maybe, maybe there's a rich uh, or, or well-to-do youth orchestra director out there. Somewhere. It won't necessarily hurt infinity. Gotcha. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. But uh, all of that to uh, say there are kids who can play music well. There are. Yeah. And I think that, like you said before, it's just it's reinforcing a stereotype that isn't helpful and not necessarily true. I mean, think about the first time you played in a band concert. Was it tight? Was it, were you together? I mean, we thought it was, but... <laughs> or, for your experience level, was it exactly where you would expect it to be? And maybe even higher than that. See, it's always great when you hear folks talk about, oh, I couldn't even believe this was a seventh grade band or, or what, you know, so, and especially with YouTube and all of the different other resources that young people have that I didn't have, you know, the, the kids can sound great these mm -hmm. days, as, as is, uh, as is uh, proven by the New Brunswick uh, Youth Orchestra and even some of our own local orchestras. How about we listen to how great the Greater Twin Cities Youth Symphony sounds? Let's do it. Here's a little bit of that to transition us. Dvorak there as performed by some of the local youths. You know, Strong horn section. As, as we were listening to that, th this is kind of what I think it boils down to it. And, and maybe I'm stretching, but I feel like a lot of people don't appreciate music in the way that they think <laughs> they do, but rather, but listen to me, Scott, they appreciate the status of getting dressed of up course. and going to a, a concert or, or being seen somewhere. You see, when I listen to that Dvorak, there are things that I heard in the first violins, you know, some, some tuning issues. But the point is that I can hear the spirit of what these children are trying to put forward and passion that they have as young children. There are grownups that don't have half the discipline of a high school, middle school age violin player, you that's know, true. especially when you got a lesson coming up or, or a recital coming up. So that's what I think it kind of boils down to when we talk about appreciating community band uh, concerts and, you know, local uh, amateur organizations and ensembles and all the way down to the, 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 the child concerts, you know, mm -hmm. the, the youth orchestra things. If you appreciate music, you know, you should have an appreciation of all of its forms and the way that it e evolves from the professional all the way down to those early seedling stages. You know, I'm sure that if you had the time and space to really dig into brewing in the way that you want to, surely there would be an interest in seeing the sproutlings of a hop you know, that maybe you plant or grow mm -hmm. that will one day become this, that will what, you know, an event and down the line, you're drinking the beer. You know, I think that genuine love for music, if it's there, there can always be an appreciation for the different types of sounds that different types of musicians mm -hmm. make over the course of their uh, musical lives. So again, shout out to Maestro McLeod and everyone up there in, in New Brunswick for uh, shaking it up and standing up 
for the young musicians. We got one more. I haven't been pressing any of my accidental buttons. Let's Uh-oh. give let's give uh, Maestro McLeod a sharp, and we're going to give Anthony uh, Parther and all the Gateways folks um, a sharp. All right. So we have one final accidental uh, for uh, this first movement this week, and this one gets a flat. I'm, re- <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm reading here from... Um, um, tpr.org texas public radio it says music director speaks out about his san antonio symphony contract termination i'm reading last friday san antonio symphony management terminated music director emeritus sebastian lang lessing's contract that will have allowed him to come back to the city and direct a pair of concerts for the symphony in May. He says, my solidarity goes to the musicians of the San Antonio symphony. What they have been through is way worse. So my situation is just a small footnote. I'll let y'all read the rest of that. But long story short, the musicians of the San Antonio symphony are on strike. They're, they're going through it, uh, with, the uh, management. So in the interim, there is a local church, uh, a Baptist church down there in San Antonio, who has had the orchestra, you know, the members of the orchestra, I think officially, they have to say, to perform music and to have concerts and to keep their stuff going, despite the fact that they're on strike from their organization. What happened was that uh, the maestro, Maestro Lang Lessing, promoted spoke to the concert uh that was that was happening and that was outside of his contract so mm. they let him go there's a lot to talk about and unpack especially when we talk about the collective bargaining aspect of this because in my experience playing in orchestras and and maybe you can speak to this you know all of the orchestras that I play with professionally you know I was a part of the union in some like in Michigan when I was in Detroit I had to be a part of the union I joined the union down in Knoxville and there is always a space where it turns into musicians versus management and a strike or a lockout is what you always avoid. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately this sort of thing is by no means unprecedented in the orchestral field. So doing that outside of his contract is a fireable offense. As far as that contract was concerned. Why wouldn't he just kind of be like reprimanded or sanctioned somehow? Why fire him? Well, you tell me you have, and and as a member of a, a union now, you know, you have folks who have uh, bargained collectively together. You have someone who is outside of that because, again, remember, this maestro is not a member of the orchestra. He was music director emeritus. Mm-hmm. And even so, conductors are usually separate from musician sort of thing. So if you have musicians versus management and someone is siding with the musicians and management has the power over that person who's siding with the musicians, why wouldn't they have fired him? Of course, you know, I think it's a shame, but it makes total sense to me. Uh, Was he aware of this and did it anyway? Perhaps. Let me let's let's check back in here into the article. It says a clause in Lang Lessing's contract forbids him from announcing a performance of a competing music entity within a certain distance of the city. And symphony management said he violated that clause. Managers claimed he crossed the line when he announced that he would conduct the Baptist Church musicians of the San Antonio Symphony performance uh, coming up in May. They said it was a technical violation because the San Antonio Symphony is scheduled to perform on those same nights. uh, But barring a miracle, the symphony won't be performed. So 
it sounds like the the organization doesn't want to have to compete or or doesn't even want to come into the risk of having to compete, which I think there's something to be said about that because if more of these orchestras had to compete, mm-hmm. it would it would look a little bit different, especially if the so-called quality was the same, just the venue was different. Have you heard of a clause like that before? You know, when I was playing in Knoxville, we regularly there was there was one church in particular that the orchestra regularly played, but it could never be billed as or we I should say could never be billed as the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. We were always musicians of the Knoxville. So I forget the the way they would do it. So I'm sure there was something in the clause there that said you can't hire out the orchestra to do X, Y, and Z. So they gave us all each an individual contract. So they're the technical ways sure. to to get around those. Uh, sorts of things, but the music director was the leverage that management had. So that's the that's the leverage they use. Yeah, you know, because it seems like whenever somebody gets suddenly disappeared mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because of something or let go suddenly, to me that sounds a little ticky tack. Right. So do you think something else was going on? I don't know. I mean, when when we when we talk about collective bargaining and and all of that drama when it gets to that point when it gets to the point where folks are on strike i think both sides do what they got to do the musicians mm. they all went over in solidarity over to this church to play you know this this venue that would have them mm. and you know the uh the management of the symphony didn't have control over that but they had control over the, yeah. the maestro so that, i think that, that, that's what happened i think he makes a good quote here it's very malicious move it doesn't prove that they're really working for the musicians i mean right there do y'all talk about that at y'all's job as y'all have caucus and different union things do you consider what a strike would look like or what a lockout would look like has um, that been a conversation yet Keep in mind that I haven't been to all meetings, so that might have been covered. Sure. So I can't as, respond. But, but as far as you know, no. As far as I know, no. I mean, are you ready to? Because again, when musicians, when orchestral musicians, you know, go to AFM, that's the one I'm uh, mm-hmm. uh, have been a member of, and you know, sign up for the union. You know, something like a strike is something that we're prepared to. I don't know. I shouldn't say prepared to do, but that we understand as a real and true possibility not not just something that's up in the air I mean, are, are so personally are you thinking about a strike as a member of a union in conjunction with a music entity are you thinking about what a strike would look like if if that's what happened i haven't no and that's a good reminder we have um we're, now we're up to two negotiating sessions a week so i i'm gonna find out about that yeah, and and maybe this can lead the way. What would it look like for Good another question. studio or for another something with some mics like these that that we got here? <laughs> you know, what would it look like for y'all to say, okay, well, we'll just broadcast from over there. They have the technology, they have the the whatever X Y Z. You know, mm-hmm. so if there was someone outside of y'all's negotiating, you know, y'all's y'all's group of union members who is, you know, hyping y'all up, you know, maybe someone in management over there at APM saying, oh, well, you know, the the hosts here are on strike, but we'll be live on X, Y, and Z and da, da, da. Of course, you know, they will pull the trigger on that person if they have the the power to. And I think that's what we're seeing here with the, hmm. the San Antonio Symphony. And it's really one of the reasons why I really stand behind a level I'm maybe I'm softening up but I, I stand behind a level of the call out culture that a lot of people don't like because we we're reading about you know uh maestro 
uh, Lang Lessing, who was let go. You know, going back to the opening, we're reading about uh, Mary Lucia, but so many of these folks in management, you know, that's just this ambiguous sort of status that a mm-hmm. lot of individuals find themselves in and they get to make these decisions, but they don't get the public critique or, mm-hmm. or don't have mm-hmm. to face the the uh, court of public opinion. I think there's something to be said about that. And I hope that folks will understand the power that they have in this moment, you know, to every one of those people buying tickets to see the San Antonio Symphony at this church. You know, there is a message that you can send not only by being in that space, but in many other ways that you can send to that institution, to all of the people upset about Mary Lucia walking away from the current, all of those listeners, they have power in this moment. They can make their voices be heard and maybe it'll fall on deaf ears. And if it does, to me, that is a prime indicator of how you should move going forward. If this institution doesn't give a damn about what you have to say and what you think and and what your ideas are or whatever, then consider that next time it's time for you to buy a 60 or 70 or $80 ticket to go uh, see this orchestra perform something that you can hear on Spotify Mm. or on on YouTube, even by a youth orchestra playing beautifully as well. (laughs) You know, you know, think transition, uh, you know, uh, applying that conversation to radio. Think about that next time you hear a pledge drive or somebody asking for some money. Anyway, Hmm. All of that to say thoughts and prayers to everyone down in uh, in San Antonio and shout out to uh, First Baptist Church down there in San Antonio. You know, that's what an accomplice looks like, Scott. Hmm. That's an institution doing what they can to stand up to, to some of these uh, organizations and to some of these power structures. Anyway, um, that's our accidentals for this week. We're going to get into the second movement uh, by hearing a San Antonio dance. I found a piece of music by uh, Frank Tichelli, uh, the second movement of his San Antonio dance is called Tex-Mex on the Riverwalk. We'll take a little Riverwalk as we get into our second movement today. I really do hope that y'all will talk about that and think about that, that whole issue of going on strike or God forbid being locked out, going through a lockout. I don't know. I I, I haven't heard of that in public radio. I also had never heard of unionization in public radio. So Mm -hmm. anyway, I'm just saying that that is a conversation that we have on the orchestral side of things where we're talking about union and collective bargaining. We fully understand that a strike is in the purview of possibility. So Mm. I, I, I hope that y'all will engage that as 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 uh, as y'all explore collective bargaining. You know, I, I wonder if you've noticed all of the other sorts of institutions. I've seen there are Starbucks that are unionizing and Amazon Big Warehouse deal. has Big unionized, deal, yeah. you know. So these these are, you know, that just being a part of a union and forming forming that union is a is the first part of what you have to do. You know, there's the sustaining of these, uh, it's not called bylaws, but maybe a contract or whatever it is, you know, there's the upholding of that. Mm -hmm. And then there's understanding what happens when those things aren't 
upheld. Mm. And, you know, I hope that we can all take a look at what's going on in San Antonio, especially those of us uh, in arts institutions, and consider what it could look like if we had to do that. And beyond that, consider what institutions would have your back, you know, are going to be an accomplice to you to support you. The First Baptist Church down there is that for those musicians. I wonder who that could be for you, Scott. A question for another day. But mm. we're here in the second movement where we're going to talk a little bit about some music that we've been spending our time with this week. You've done a really good job this month, Scott, of uh, affirming and highlighting national, International Guitar Month. Uh, before you offer your piece of music that I'm sure is uh, guitar-themed or guitar-adjacent, there's someone who maybe has an old dusty guitar in the corner or maybe someone who's always wanted to play guitar and there's one in the pawn shop for $50 and mm-hmm. they're thinking about it. What are some words uh, that you could offer to the aspiring guitarist? Well, you're listening to a 52-year-old guy that got a late start. and Exactly. Only there are a lot of people that, getting a late start. Right. right? And uh, it has taken me a. It's been a long road to get to the technique that I have now, which is intermediate. I'll I'll give myself that credit. You do pretty well. I do all right. Um, but I'm glad that I'm here, and I'm glad that I have gotten to that point where I can, you know, just sort of uh, pick up on a song and play along. Sure. Uh, so no matter how long it takes you to get there, you might get a guitar and spend six months every hour of the day doing nothing but that. And all of a sudden you're, you know, recording albums, mm-hmm. more power to you. Uh, the point is, is that whether it takes you 15 years like me or six months, like some virtuoso at the end of it, you will have created something artistic. You will have contributed to this world your art, yep. your, what you have to say, and and that makes it worth it. I came to guitar, I took uh, guitar in elementary school and then let it go for decades and then- Like steel string acoustic or classical? I, I don't remember that much, probably, I, I don't even know, but okay. it was it was a guitar, I know that much. Um, and then, you know, got back into it uh, when I moved here to Minnesota, you got me that guitar, um, but I had- played ukulele for a long time. And there was just one summer, I believe it was back in 2015, uh, where I didn't have a lot going on. The orchestra that I, the Knoxville Symphony was out for the season. I didn't have a part-time job or nothing. So all I had to do was to sit on the balcony in my apartment and overlook the rock, uh, the Rocky Mountains, the Smoky <laughs> Mountains, <laughs> and learn how to play a ukulele that someone had bought me years before. So I just started with some chords. And then as I got good at some basic chords, I started to sing, you know, different songs or whatever using the ukulele. And that's how I got some practice in and was able to start to feel comfortable. Uh, when it comes to guitar, I wonder if you would point folks in a similar direction. Should they start just learning some chords or, or what would be your guidance? I think it depends on what your learning style is. If, you know, I need somebody there to 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 point out mistakes and errors in real time. Mm-hmm. Other people would be, you know, and I can do it from YouTube, but there isn't that person there going, okay, now wait, you need to, you know, and then they'll correct you somehow. Sure. So I like that in-person thing. Some people can learn from a book, learn from videos, YouTube, whatever, find whatever works for you and go that route. Maybe you just want to sit there and do it on your own with, with nothing. Yeah. Rock on. Not everyone has, you know, once upon a time, I know we're spending a lot of time talking about this, but once upon a time... 
a, a piano was just a piece of furniture that a lot of people had. And most folks who had that piece of furniture, there was someone in the house who could just play a little ditty if people wanted to grab a drink and sing a song or whatever. Mm-hmm. I imagine that there are a lot of people, you know, so not everyone can have a piano in their home these days, but a guitar doesn't take up that much space. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who could really appreciate being able to grab a guitar and to play the chords to happy birthday or whatever, sure. you know, what was, what was going on. So, I, you know, if I can offer my own words of encouragement, you know, I think guitar is one of those instruments that can be a really great entry point, especially for someone who is out of school. You know, I, hes- I only hesitate. I don't mean to say older as an older, but if you have no proximity to a music teacher or a school of music or anything, right. I see guitar as one of those instruments that, you know, with some reading, with some YouTube watching and some patience, you can learn to pick up not quite like the bassoon or oboe or any of these other things but yeah. i think i think guitar is ex- is accessible enough so all of that to say happy international guitar month go pick up a guitar and see what happens let's shift let's shift over to the bassoon for a minute okay if if you were going to have a bassoon made with the garrett mcqueen signature on it somewhere sure the garrett mcqueen line of bassoons what would you name it what would i n- what would I name the line or like mm-hmm. the, the brand? Yeah. Like, so hmm. uh, like, so, okay. So who makes, is this a Fox bassoon? Is it that is. That's saying? a okay. Fox. Yeah. So what if they were going to put out the Garrett McQueen line? What hmm. would you call it? Maybe something like, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say dark wood, but, <laughs> but that's a, but, but that's a, that's the name of a piece of music by Jennifer Higdon, you know, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> a bassoon feature piece, but I don't know. Why do you, why do you ask about the name of a Because the man, line? the man that I'm bringing in, recently had a Fender guitar line named for him. Oh, really? Yeah, because when uh, when Niall Gregory Rogers Jr. got his first guitar, it was not white, but he had a thing for Jimi Hendrix and his music, so he took it home and spray-painted it white. Jimi Hendrix had a white guitar. Right, so Niall gets a guitar that wasn't, paints it white, and every single song that he wrote on that guitar was a hit. And they called that guitar the Hitmaker. So Fender has now released the Nile Rodgers guitar, the Hitmaker. Now you will, you know, come over here week after week and talk about all every song that he wrote was a hit. Okay, but do I know it? But do the people know it? What's some of the music? Do you know this person? We are family by Sister Sledge. Oh yeah, I know that too. He co-wrote and plays guitar on it. Okay. Do you know uh, Modern Love by David Bowie? Modern Love, maybe not by title. I'm sorry, not Modern Love. Let's Dance by David Bowie. Oh, sure. He played guitar on that. Um, most most recently that I can think of, Daft Punk, Get Lucky. So still at it. Still at it. And so he, what he's good at is finding the hook. You bring him in, and in five, ten minutes, he's figured out what the hook of the song is going to be, and boom, you're off to the races. But the one that did it for me was from 1977 Nile Rodgers and Chic Le Freak
Okay, so let me just quickly say, even the violins in this music video are white. You know, so that's that's you know painted white. So that's a, a taking a cue from there. But of course, many of us know this music, but we don't always focus in on exactly what that guitar is doing. Is there a, a certain type of style or technique that you can speak to? You know that we're hearing here. Mm, there's there's just uh, there's a shuffle. You hear him? How he's kind of chucka chucking it. Uh, a lot of the music in in that era relies on keeping the right hand going constantly. Yeah. And so your left hand is doing you know most of the chord work, and so that's that's an example of it. if if it's if it's got a name, I'm not sure of it, but um, he was the guy to come in and find out what the what is in a song. Well, all of this black history just all throughout music that we don't always <laughs> think about. Um, electric versus acoustic. We're hearing electric guitar mm -hmm. in, 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 in that music there. Would you encourage or, or stand by someone jumping into electric, or do you think having an acoustic guitar is a better way to learn? I think electrics are a little bit easier to play. Oh, the really? Are, yeah, the necks are smaller. You can get a you can get a brand new Fender Stratocaster from the Bullet line for 150 bucks. You know, plug it into your uh in into GarageBand, you know, from you know, you get your your little focus right interface like you've got. You know, so for under five hundred bucks you're recording in the garage band with a whole bunch of stomp boxes and creating the next Grammy winning album. That's awesome. Yeah. Shout out to shout out to all of the guitarists out there. I'll definitely say that my relationship with the guitar and guitar music has grown since uh, meeting you and moving here. I will put on the uh, guitar concertos, even the electric guitar concertos every mm, now and mm -hmm. again when I was down at WUOT, but just really understanding the diversity and the breadth of the instrument and the way that it has impacted so many genres. We can talk about the Spanish guitar. We can talk about the funk and the jazz. We can talk about um, bluegrass and Americana. It's just one of those instruments that stares right stares us right dead in the face, you know, so much of the time musically, but we don't always think about it. I don't mm. always think about it anyway. Guitar has even played a significant role in, you know, the theme music for for Triloquy, you know, as played by yeah. you. So, uh, so lots of great stuff. Shout out to the guitar. And again, happy International Guitar Month to everyone. I, everybody, I'm going to bring in something different next week. Trust. I, I'm sorry. No, I, 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 I love the guitar uh, <laughs> uh, focus. All right. Well, for me this week, um, I went back to the Silk Road Ensemble again. We're gonna—I'm I'm, gonna speak a little bit more to this in the uh, in the final movement. But Scott, I've been feeling getting into that mood where I want to get away. You know, we 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 all Tell we all need more. time where we're not only away mentally, you know, taking a break from work, but where we need that physical getting away, just somewhere far away. Mm. Um, so I've been watching different documentaries, and you know, you'll get on YouTube. I like to get on YouTube and watch some uh, videos about a place I've never been as a way of at least feeling like I'm learning about a different place. Well, in watching all of these videos, specifically uh, videos that take place over in 
uh, East and Southeast Asia. Uh, um, I've been hearing a lot of those cello solos. And if it has something to do with Asia and there's a cello solo, you know, you can usually count on Yo Yo Ma being in the credits somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I went back and uh, went to some of my favorite Silk Road recordings featuring Yo Yo Ma and have been spending some time this week with a tune called Distant Green Valley. I probably shared it on Triloquy before, but thinking again about that wanting to get away, the idea of distance has uh, has has really been on my mind, and, and this piece of music has helped me lean into that a little bit. when you get those uh, percussion instruments coming in there and and hearing tonalities that aren't necessarily Western European, I think it's really easy for me, at least, to hear those sounds and to go far, far, far away in my mind. I think it's beautiful. And, you know, as we talk about, again, the responsibility that we have as broadcasters and all this sort of thing, we can help people have that imagination through our programming as well. It seems kind of a trite thing to say music can take you to far, far away places or whatever. But let's face it, that's a type of aesthetic that we aren't always censuring. When we talk about our art spaces, especially when we talk about classical music, it's such beautiful music that has has helped me really you know, deal with some of my feelings of potential burnout and getting away. Another part of this piece of music that I wanted to highlight was the middle section. So as you, as we get into our minds, thinking about where we could be, especially if we're listening to some good music, maybe we're smoking some weed or something, uh, there's that actually being in the place, you know, the, the, what this new reality would look like, what it would feel like, the marketplaces, the, the bars, the, the restaurants. And I think the uh, middle portion of this piece speaks to that really, really beautifully. So in this music, I hear the market and people are sure. you know, hustling and bustling and I don't know the language so I'm all lost and I don't know what to do but it you know just <laughs> just thinking about all the different things and I don't know just just hearing these sounds and, and this performance by the Silk Road Ensemble has curbed some of you know that anxiety that I feel about being trapped and oh it's still cold here in Minnesota in April I wish I were somewhere else if I can't do it physically at least I can do it mentally and emotionally you know what I like to do help me do that I'll go over to a convenience store and get some junk food and a and a um, something to drink and get out on the interstate. If I can get out on the interstate with a playlist going and get in some in between some semis, I can kind of trick myself into thinking I'm I'm going somewhere. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So like, and hey, but you know, with the gas prices the way they are now, that's going to be an expensive proposition. Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, it is. So maybe it's the 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 music we need because that's the only way we get in somewhere, right? <laughs> but uh, shout out to uh, Yo Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble. Go definitely go check out that tune, "Distant Green Valley." Here's a little bit of the uh, end of that.
Is there a place in the world that you hope to see and you can't quite speak it into existence just yet? Thinking about your checking account and oh <laughs> you know everything goodness. you got going on. But is there a place in the world that you hope that you can see with your own eyes before it's all said and done. I would love to go to the Hebrides. Really? Yeah, as much as Fingal's Cave kind of gives me the hinks when I look at pictures of it, I'd love to be there in person. Yeah, even in the boat going up under the cave. I'm going to give it a try. I'll give it a try. Well, it's it's not that tall. I mean, they're not (laughs) going to drive some big, you know, Coast Guard boat into it. Sure. No, that's what what makes it scary. (laughs) Kayakers can go up in there. Yeah, see, see, not me. See, I don't don't do the water like that. Don't you? But, you know, for me, I really hope, you know, there are, I've heard, I've been to, you know, uh, places in Asia, but I would really love to go to some of those off the beaten path, at least by Westerners uh, places like the, see the pagodas of Singapore or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, go to Thailand and and hear some some traditional music. And I don't know, there's so many things that I hope to be able to see. And even if I don't make it to all of those places, uh, pieces of music like this distant green valley is performed by the Silk Road Ensemble. It, It helps me paint the picture in my mind. And maybe even painting that picture means I'll have the inspiration to, you know, skip a bottle of champagne and put that money aside for something like a trip in the future. But, hmm. You know, good but, idea. I, but I can't be on a plane with folks coughing all in my face for 12 hours. Now we're going to have to do something <laughs> about these masks back on the plane. I think internationally, you still have to wear them. It's, it's the domestic that that uh, federal court in Florida kind of uh, got out of here. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, we're getting in here into the third movement. This week's third movement guests are Andy and Travis from The Living Earth Show. The Living Earth Show um, started uh, as an ensemble. Both Andy and Travis were students at the San Francisco Conservatory. They weren't really being fed or nurtured by the tradition of so-called classical music, Western classical music. So they decided to do their own thing and started and uh, to start creating music that that's far outside of that norm, outside of that Western European conditioning. As they've grown, they've become a nonprofit that supports and promotes other artists who are really trying to push the needle and do that work. They have a specific focus on foregrounding BIPOC artists and LGBTQ artists, not only through identity, but in looking at some of the ways that history has painted a brush over some of the Black artists and queer artists who have been at the forefront of things. Things like rock music and metal music. You've even talked about uh, metal artists or or rock artists from like the DC area. Mm-hmm. I, I'm forgetting the the name of the bands right now, but there's a bad brains. Sure, yeah. right. So there's a there's a history there. So uh, in addition to you know sort of spreading their ideas and inspiring different thoughts about the concert hall experience and what this so called classical music is or what it should sound like, they go into some of those conversations as well as far as the folks that they uh, play platform and the uh, and the music they help make possible and talking about um some of those things you know the history of black and queer um and divergent uh thought within things like metal and rock uh they brought up corn i forget exactly how that came up but mm-hmm. my connection to corn was a cover of one of their songs called thoughtless um as performed years ago by evanescence i went through an emo phase like many of us did sure and for me <laughs> evanescence was there so uh with all of that in mind i've 
uh, we're going to transition uh, into my conversation with Andy and Travis from the Living Earth Show with a little bit of that performance. It just takes me back to memory lane. I'm sure there are a lot of black folks and some queer folks who are affirmed by that. So we're going to listen to it to get into my conversation. Shout out to Andy and Travis from the Living Earth Show. Hope you enjoy what we talk about here today. Here's a little bit of Evanescence uh, and music of corn, Thoughtless. Our 100% primary audience is the composers and collaborators we work with. Like our job is to be the best and most sort of like uncompromising platform for them to create work that they've always wanted to do or like their most ambitious work or the thing that they thought they couldn't. Yeah. And so oftentimes that is directly at odds with what would be marketable to a classical presenter or their classical audience, or even like anyone who's new to the field. Like there's a lot of times, you know, and we're not even talking about the works that directly antagonize our traditional audience, which of which there's a lot, but like, you know, when I'm working with someone, it's like, I, my, my job is almost to turn off the part of my brain. That's like, Oh, people are going to like this. Hmm. Like my role as a collaborator and as like someone who's interpreting the work of someone else is to realize their vision uncompromisingly and allow, and then, then like after the fact, as administrator, we'll go back and be like, how can we like, how can we spin this to be palatable across like whatever thing. But it's like, it's almost like they're two separate identities that have to be divorced from each other in order to have have work that really does feel like it's pushing things forward existing in the world. Cause every time one starts to cater to what, I don't know what cater to what other people think. It feels like it holds stuff back. Right. Well, because music is so steeped in your tradition and what you, what you expect, it's like your, your expectations and what you're comfortable with. And so like, and that's great. That's what makes it so powerful. It's what makes it connect so viscerally. Yeah. But also if our job as a nonprofit arts organization is to like exist outside of the marketplace is to create things that foster a certain kind of progress and like really do things that push in ways that might be uncomfortable. Thinking about audience almost has to or like, it, it's a separate conversation to like, but it's a little well, separate and it isn't like my, like I, I think about audience being every collaborator we've ever worked with. Mm. Like that's who we're serving as an arts organization primarily. Yep. And when we talk about some of these uh, traditional structures and ideas, I feel like the very phrase classical music is a part of that. I've, I've taken the time to uh, listen to the Living Earth Show collaborations and, uh, and creations and I'm a radical in many ways, but I can definitely make a case for what you create as classical music, you know, depending on, you know, uh, considering the work I do and the way I, I do that. Um, but that's just me. What, what what are your relationships with that phrase classical music as it relates to the work that you do? Complicated. <laughs> it's, it's changed a lot over time um, where... At first, you know, it was like us just kind of like going along and being complicit with, um, okay, well, we're doing this in the classical tradition. And then it became this kind of um, very self-conscious re revolt about, oh, we would say, oh, we play classical music on the wrong instruments. Okay. Um, and, then, and then we found that that actually didn't really, it wasn't really a service to the people we were collaborating with. Mm-hmm. Um, to just fully embracing it, like we're we're a classical mm -hmm. music ensemble. Like 
Mm-hmm. That's what we are. And I think that like it, it really um, makes it easier and then to make it explicit like that. Not only easier, but it's the truth. I mean, that's how we try to that's how we try to treat every collaboration as if it is part of the tradition. Sure. Um, I might actually push back. I might actually disagree with you a little bit on this. And good. Like, Do it. I think like, all right, I will. Um, I think like, you know, over time, like the like experimental music has been a thing that's sat a little better than classical music mm-hmm. um, in terms of what we do and how we approach it. Um, like, because there's so much of what we do as an organization that really is not classical music by any, like commando, not classical music by any definition. Um, and a lot of projects too, that like fit a lot more as, you know, if, if like improvised music or noise music are genres of music independent of classical music. Yeah those works would fit better there. It would round up to noise more than they would round up to classical music. And so like even talking about it like that suggests a certain kind of institutional primacy. That's really important for us to recognize or like us as an ensemble to like recognize, recognize, reckon with, and like, you know, it's, it's useful when giving artists a platform and like a certain kind of cultural legitimacy, but also has the effect of muting what someone might do or like might refracting their work or like all, all sorts of things. And so like, it's, it's a very, very important thing that we, that's like a part of our artistic lives. Um, We commission composers in a very specific tradition. We, we work with notated music. We work with scores. Our training allows us to rehearse and internalize music in a way that is inextricably linked from that, from that history. Um, however, you are, you are, you're just, just, I'm sorry. I just like marvel sometimes at how good you are at yes. And (laughs) (laughs) that's the only way forward. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But, um, you know, like I think every, for every, it's one of the things that's actually been a little hard for our, our ensemble to exist, um, is that, and you know, one thing that we, that is true is like, whatever, like whatever your sort of like listening habits are, whatever you enjoy, like we, I guarantee you, we've done something that'll alienate you like so deeply. Like Mm. there's one, one segment of our work will alienate you so hard, at least one, probably many. And so I think for a lot of chamber music ensembles, we, it's, it's kind of like there, there's groups that I love and everything they commission, like sort of almost has like a red thread, whether it's instrumentation or style or like musical sort of vocabulary. And it feels like you're listening to a band you like, where I feels like that for me. And whereas for us, it's like every single, like every album on this record label now will sound like a wildly different band. Like not even on the same instruments, not even close. Like, you know, because like our instruments are so open-ended on by design, like it's sometimes hard for an audience, a traditional audience member to latch on to us as a music fan because they'll like, you know, throw our, like whatever we have on Spotify, throw that on shuffle and it sounds insane. Sure. And which many people would see as a good thing, you know, on, yeah. the, on the other side. Oh, I know? mean, we do. That's we, we, <laughs> that, that feels essential. And it also feels sort of like antithetical to music existing in the marketplace. Mm. Um, which, which again, like our responsibility as a nonprofit arts organization is to do that. It's to like, which is also like classical music is, is a funny word because like, what does that sound like? 
Right, right. Like, and, and, the, and the reason that I, I push so hard for recontextualizing that phrase, because I can get down with, uh, uh, you use the word, the phrase noise music. I can get down with yeah. the word noise as a descriptor and not as a, a pejorative and fostering mm-hmm. all of these different spaces. But at the same time, I can't let a culture or an infrastructure just exist because sometimes those things have implications that go beyond those institutions. For example, I go back and forth with how I feel about orchestras because I feel like those artists deserve a space. But at the same time, if we maintain orchestral institutions as they've always existed, there are other implications and other status quos that we are maintaining at the same time. That, that's, the, that's really the biggest reason why I'm, I'm so challenged by um, not considering more things classical and not broadening what we mean when we use that phrase, classical music. I mean, I, I love your podcast for 10 zillion reasons. And one of them is sort of like the, the red thread of discussing like what belongs in a conversation about classical music. Like, yeah. I don't know if any sort of like mainstream thing that like sort of brings that conversation to the fore, like, like y'all do. So that's like, been just as a fan really funded not to now like be a bit of a part of but like i mean we have projects that like i mean commando is not like what what would possibly be classical music about that other than like the fact that we have classical training we came from conservatories um but you know at the same time like we rehearse and memorize in a specific kind of way or like i do like i approach like in that project i played I don't know how much we need to talk about like what that project is, but like my initial rules of like that project were like I had to play drums like by Brad Wilk rules, which meant like if he the drummer for Rage Against the Machine, if he couldn't play it, I wouldn't. Okay, um, and which is like a, a fun handicap. Um, he's, he's a great drummer, but like but but like would never play anything like that's not particular. Like is a is a very specific kind of drummer. Right. Right. And so, like. And the majority of that band by far does not read music, has no interest in like the, in any discussion of classical music. That's not like even, even on their radar as artists and as composers. Yeah. Um, And so like for us, it's like, if we call that classical music, who is that for? Sure. And and that's a really important, and I I say that just like, I, I don't necessarily know the answer. I, oh, sorry, Travis, go ahead. It's, it, I mean, it's interesting because it's even divided within our ensemble, right? It's like how, how personal, like you make that, like whether or not you want to just be a musician and then detach from that tradition. And, and it's, it's like a thing that you engage in or, you know, I guess like in my situation, I, I just kind of feel like it's a thing that I carry with me and try to do something I'm proud of with it. Yeah. I, I, I want to loop this conversation back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier Sorry. when it comes to, oh, no, no, it's fine. It's great. Uh, with geography, you know, my conception of the Bay Area is one that would allow for a project like this to grow and, and thrive, a place that's sort of weird. Again, a, a word not as a pejorative, but as a as a, a descriptor. Uh, but you've been, you know, you're, you're well-traveled as an organization, as an mm-hmm. ensemble. You've been to South Carolina. And, and all sorts of other places. I wonder how geography has uh, played a role in the development of your projects. Are you received as well in on the East Coast as you are in the Bay Area? Well, I think the first thing that geography did for us is I, I know we would not exist had we started in New York. We would not be sure. doing it right now um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think because the first couple of years, we basically lived in a practice room together for probably three, four years 
just like memorizing complicated music for a couple dozen people. Um, and that like made us develop a musical language that like, you know, when we memorize things now, we draw from that. We draw from the moments we spent like memorizing Fernie Ho and Ken Wayno's piece and like mm -hmm. all those things, all like these very like complicated things that are for not like, you know, that are, that are, I think I still think are pretty great, but like, we're not for, we're not lucrative decisions in the moment. And were we in New York, I know like Travis for sure would be like a very, very in-demand person playing so many things. Like in in the the way like the, if you, I don't know how much folks know about like what the Bang on a Can Festival is like and what that scene is like, but the idea that you can just play like 10 million gigs, like back to back to back to back to back and like learn so much music so quickly and then do it and then sort of put it on a different hat, do another one. Like, our first couple of years, we weren't doing that. We were like really getting deep into building like a a musical, an ensemble based vocabulary, mm. like for how to memorize collectively, how to cue and perform all those things. So I think the Bay being kind of not a hub for classical music allowed that to exist. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting, especially considering the San Francisco Conservatory, not only the San Francisco Symphony, but the Oakland East Bay Symphony, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, with it not being a hub, it's it still seems like it's a an ecosystem that's really rich and not only new idea, but the the traditions that so many of us try to dismantle. Yeah. Totally. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it was it, it was good at the time. You know, I think like some of the things that like did make it good for us were great in moderation, but like they've 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 changed like a a, a little bit, um, particularly financial pressures. I think the things that yeah really did work to our advantage is that like there um, you know there were other opportunities for us to like play music and 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 maybe survive a little bit, but there weren't that many. Mm -hmm. So we were always kind of like directed into putting energy back into rehearsing and the ensemble and figuring out how to do pieces that were designed to be impossible you know we were we were really able to not be that distracted like particularly like when we were out of school and just like trying to figure it all out you know we always like came back to like meeting at the rehearsal space at 10 a.m right every day and right. then also i think that like how expensive the city was even at the time like mm -hmm. also really Much helped less us now. too because it, it really kept us on it where it's just like okay like how do we you know how to you know you, you start out and you start playing and then you you want to present and then you feel so insignificant which you know like to do another like kind of meta full circle which is where i think a lot of the you know some of the the decisions that we made that would be considered macho like came from where it's just like you feel so small you feel so insignificant like you don't know how you're going to get attention and and try to elevate the thing that you're doing and the people that you're playing with so you're just like okay well you know that's where you try to inflate it you yeah. know a little bit <laughs> Uh, which is what I what I think we what I think we really like tried to do until we found like a better way of doing it. But it was I think it was just like a lot of that pressure, like having like having a little bit of financial pressure that like translated to like how do we get in front of people and how do we matter um, that that kept our attention on the project like in in those early years. So and, oh go ahead. I, I was just going to ask you know how do you balance that uh, financial viability against some of the more progressive conversations that are popping up when it comes to class solidarity and anti-capitalism? Mm -hmm. Is it all about breaking even? I mean, what, what, what's your, your financial well, approach? I mean, that's a, that's really complicated. And like, it's, uh, it is whenever those things feel like they're in conflict directly, which I mean, they're always in conflict, but whenever there's like a direct conflict, like the, the money side has to lose and that has to be so prominent. And like, mm. we've also like, as we've built 
into like like the ensemble into an arts organization like those things are like as we build a board of directors um like the importance of having like you know a board of directors that represents our audience and our the people we want to serve and what what feels like the folks we want leading the arts organization of our dreams mm-hmm. like that's very rarely going to be folks whose lives are steeped in capitalism as we know mm-hmm. um and folks who are like you know there's and that's that so that that is a conversation that is like but also you know one has to like unfortunately one doesn't really have a choice of like the financial system under which they live. Right. Um, and so, so for us, there's like, I think it involves very constant reflection and very intentional, like, um, conversations about like what each decision means, like who it's for, how it's made and kind of like, like allowing voices into that conversation. We trust to guide those decisions. Yeah. And it's, it's a great thing. You know, it's just that like, um, that's where, you know, the soul and the conscience of the ensemble comes from is just like having everything being so complicated and then dealing with, you know, gross problems that like involve money and the split of it. And then having to rely upon constant consensus and compromise that I think is a real strength. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't want to end our conversation without Mm -hmm. talking a little bit about Commando since it's (laughs) been uh, mentioned a couple of times. I'm just, you know, for for the folks at home, I'm just going to read uh, from the, from that portion of the site. It says a San Francisco based collective of queer and trans artists coming together to use the traditionally heteronormative vocabulary of heavy metal rap and poetry as a unified site to aggressively celebrate queerness and dismantle hetero patriarchy. I can, I can speak to the heteronormative aspects of uh, rap and even in poetry. Um, I'm not so familiar with that um, within heavy metal and then moreover that as a a meeting place to, Mm. as you say here, aggressively celebrate queerness. I wonder if you can speak more to that. Go for it. Travis, you want want to start? Okay, yeah. I think that like, you know, separating the, the genesis of that project, like, had a lot to do with reimagining the the age of rap metal. So I think that like they've already been synthesized like in our mind or in our concept was that like you know the the rap metal thing had already happened. Yeah. Well actually yeah yeah so so yeah, well, what were you listening to in 1999? Uh 1999 uh Project Pat uh Juvenile all you know all of all of those folks the late you know the early 2000s rap basically. What, right right what but are you watching TRL. Yeah anything anything whiter. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would have to, I mean, maybe TRL will come on every now and again, but I'm thinking more of 106 and Park and, you know, and and maybe that's another conversation based on, you know, I'm from Memphis. So being in a a predominantly black city, most of the things I consumed looked like me and and reflected my my culture. So I've never really thought about how those things uh, uh, play a role in things that fall outside of that blackness, if we're going to, you know, use that language. Sure. It's, it's fascinating for us because like, I think we're probably roughly the same generation. And so like 1999, 2000 for me and for Travis, like when we were like early middle school was, um, like the, that era right before Napster where like clear channel bought all the radio stations and nationalized the playlists. Mm -hmm. And so things like does like, like, like Limp Bizkit and Corn 
Sure, I've heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we're like, we're ubiquitous in a way that like a band would never be again. Like, I think they sold like 40 million albums, something insane like that. Um, had a level of sort of like cultural prominence and ubiquity in like the pop music sphere. Like, I feel like, like they're every album they released would like break some sort of record mm-hmm. of just like just moving units. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and then like, it was also like popular news at the time that this was like due to um, like Geffen was doing a, a pay-to-play policy, like with Limp Biscuit in particular, and it was mm-hmm. just like, oh my god, like it, it was making it plain that oh, you could just like spend money and then just <laughs> yeah, and get the statistics. And that also like you know things like Woodstock '99, like these sort of like profound kind of like moments that were very national news because of their sort of like just just horrific like masculine misogyny and homophobia and whatever um you that was like and also like this like th- this it's a really fascinating genre to reflect on um because it's it's also like it's kind of rage against the machine's fault okay uh, like <laughs> in the way that they like successfully synthesized rap hip-hop metal and sort of funk and punk and all all of these things together and like tom morello being what's up sure it's, it's a li- it's kind of faith no more's fault too but yeah, them the two of them, yes. But like, <laughs> but like, it's a genre that like, like diluted every single element mm. into okay. a specific kind of like heteronormative masculine whiteness. Um, that's just like, I I don't know if if you're if anyone wants to go back and watch that Woodstock '99 performance that Limp Bizkit did, like the headlining one that like sort of famously went south real quick. Um, and it's just like seeing that many people and that sort of like insane popularity, um, you know, influenced me as a, like, this is when I'm new to buying albums and experiencing music. Um, and so like a question we had starting this project is like, what if that cultural moment had been used for good instead of evil? Like how Mm -hmm. would the world have been different? Um, and it like, it became something very very different than that um it became basically like a project with there there's two kind of like it started with two guiding force like we like the vocalists who are basically quarterbacking a majority of the songs are juba kalamka and lim breedlove both of whom have had unbelievably heroic histories as queer artists in not just the bay but the the world I mean, Linny, um, his band Tribe 8 from the late 80s, early mid 90s, revolutionized so many things about the space cis men take up in rock spaces. And Juba um, created, I mean, so many things, uh, but I think Homo Hop and his group Deep Dick Collective as some of the first sort of out hip hop performers in the Bay and the world, like there's these decades and decades of of history and power and, and like influence. And, you know, the world would be better if they were, you know, Fred Durst. Sure, and sure. So, so when we started working together, it like a little bit had the, the vibe of like revisionist history. And then it became how can we use all of the things that we do to make a, something that you want to make that would be cool, would be exciting and, you know, your ideal music. 
Yeah, and this is good. I wasn't expecting to to think along this this thought train today, but you know, you mentioned all of these bands that I definitely don't know. But with that being said, I know Corn because at one point in my life I was feeling emo and somehow got into Evanescence, and their cover of Thoughtless is oh how God. I learned who Corn was. That's I know amazing. I know the song "Smells Like Teen Spirit" because The Breakfast Club, a nationally syndicated black radio show, that's what they start with every day I, I can I can go on and name all of these connections so with that you know being said I wonder if you have any uh, experience creating those bridges for audiences or maybe even collaborative artists considering the history you're aware of and the intersectional aspect of all this music that we don't always talk about I can do that with a personally uh, like like kind of intersectional thing where it's like I had all those $18 CDs and like I loved them mm-hmm. and then like you don't need I mean like you can go back and listen to like All in the Family or something on Follow the Leader and be like wow that's a problem and then so I love those records I also grew up you know around transness so like having to um <laughs> mm-hmm. having to deal with like both I really like these CDs and you know like that is you know kind of where the joy in the project like came from it's like you know, when you put those two things together and, and, and try to make it right, you're like, oh, there, I fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, it also like, again, in the same way we're working with like, com- like any other composer, it's like, what, Juba, what do you want to do? Like, how mm-hmm. can you make a thing that's like, and we can sort of like bring, we bring a lot of references to each other. I mean, not just like, a, well, really around every single way that we like, like grew up is so wildly different Mm -hmm. Um, and the idea of like meeting somewhere where we're able to volley these things back and forth and like create music that incorporates all of it is is you know kind of really about trust yeah Um, yeah and juba as an artist i would trust more than any human on earth um (laughs) god he's so good at so many things it's really yeah yeah if if you're unfamiliar with even like the early deep dick collective records they're just stunning and amazing and his work as an author and a poet and like a organized all all the things but i mean for us like you know we can like tell him um i think like i i told him like sent him like the video of like tom morello very sheepishly admitting that he was like a sort of sex worker like college or whatever and like he thought it was like the funniest thing in the world and then like we wrote a song about it um that like incorporates a lot of other things like the reference like you know Juba's work is references on references on references on references that are so specific to him. Mm-hmm. And it's a really fun and rewarding and important thing is to like, you know, not just like allow that to exist, but like be able to share that. So what will signal as we wrap up here, what will signal the uh, completion or the execution of your mission? I know that we can say the work is always ongoing, but is mm-hmm. is there a, a point a, a a specific point that you're working toward and you know the way that you approach all of this music and all of these conversations i mean i think that that that's a big problem right it's like i think that i success like to me i know it's a different thing for me than it is for andy but success for me like has always been like the longevity it's like However, you know, even if like, you know, the the ebb and flow of people that are attending your shows, like watching your things, commenting on your things, you know, like 
I'm okay with the ebb and flow as long as there is this longevity that we've had and I hope that we continue to enjoy. And that, I don't know if that feels goalless, but- Or just <laughs> but the, like, the institution of a system. You yeah, know, I mean, that's- A system that's, being put in place. Yeah, that's the thing I worship is that longevity. You know, it's funny because like, I think I think about this a lot and especially like I have a lot of music, musician friends who are like working in popular music and there's very specific metrics that are used to judge success and popularity. That, that, and, that can be bought and sold, you know, oh yeah, when, oh, when, fully, it, fully. when it comes to listenership and all of that sort of thing, of course. Fully. And I think like for us, or it, and for me at least, it's like really important to not engage with that as like a, or like almost recognize that that as a goal is antithetical to the actual goal of creating work that feels meaningful and is important and necessary. And like, also being very comfortable with the idea. And this is also like, is a, a thing from just thinking about historical music, like judging necessity and impact and influence is impossible to do in the moment. Sure. And so it's all again, kind of very much about trust is like the people we're working with, we trust as artists and like trust their, and I think we trust them because they really hit us as fans. Like every single person we work with, like we're a giant fan of, and they've, changed our lives in some way as listeners. And we sort of have to, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but we sort of have to imagine that their next thing will have the effect on others that it had on us. So what's the, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I would just say that like, you know, we prognosticate plenty. Like we really try, like we, you know, it's, it's not just saying that, okay, like, which we do oftentimes in mission statements and, and, and discussions about audiences, like when we're prompted talk about like, you know, we're really just doing this to, for our collaborators to elevate our collaborators and all that. But we do really think about it. You know, we want it to have impact. Like we, we want people to see it and, and feel things. And we really put a lot of thought into how everything we make will be consumed and by how many people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so is there an upcoming uh, collaboration or recent project that you appoint people to uh, as far as uh, an introduction to the Living Earth Project and, and what your mission and, and, uh, and perspective on everything is? Where, where do people need to start when they uh, begin the journey of engaging what you've created? It's funny because, well, here, Travis, you go first. You go first. Sorry. The projects page on our website. <laughs> sure. That'll do it. Um, but I mean, I think also the, the, the goal of every project is to be so deep in an artist's work that like, or our collaborators work that like, it's, it's designed to be sort of a culmination of whatever they've been working on up to this point. And so that it it feels kind of like deep in someone else's vocabulary. So I think there's not one thing that encapsulates all of it on purpose. Like by design, I think the idea is like, if one clicks around, they will find stuff that is that is interesting to them as a listener. Um, and also things that will be the opposite. Um, and also like perspectives and points of view that are, that are necessary for every human to be aware of. Um, and, and things that maybe like deal with subject matter that would be less interesting to others. Um, and so I think just like it, it is very tailored to you know what each each kind of person is looking for in their experiences and as as a listener
some nice guitar in there and some different sorts of uh, percussion and and all sorts of sound. That comes from a uh, Living Earth show project called High Art. Uh, That piece of music specifically is the Tension Study 1 by Samuel Adams. They're really just challenging music and the idea of a concert and a concert space in a a, a really unique way. We We can talk about what's left field or what's different or divergent here in Minnesota or if we live in New York or down south. But one of the things that I found, Scott, in our conversation was that being San Francisco based means some conversations have been had years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's, it's really fun to see how some of the uh, more radical, I'll use that word, some of the more radical shifts in classical spaces, so-called classical spaces, what that looks like, what that sounds like. And the Living Earth Show is doing an incredible Incredible job of just really exploring and affirming that far, far, far left field aspect of it. I know that there are, you know, conversations that we can have about decentering certain aesthetics and even describing something as left field mm-hmm. is continuing to center that thing. I also think, though, with that considered, there's some uh, affirmation that can uh, be highlighted by calling something weird or different, not as pejoratives, but as affirmations. Mm. And uh, and I, I really live in that when I hear music like that and I learn more about what the Living Earth Show is doing. So shout out to Andy and Travis. Travis, and thanks so much for uh, to both of them, both of y'all, for uh, coming on Triloquy. Before we get into the fourth movement, I want to ask you, one of the things that we talked about after uh, I cut off the mic, so I always have a, a few things I want to talk to guests about, you know, off the record. <laughs> right. um, but we talked for about another hour. It, it was a really great conversation with them. And we were talking a lot about money and um, anti-capitalism and the road toward those conversations and how, unfortunately, many of us have to, you know, harness capitalism to get to these new places. Right. I wonder um, how your relationship with money has evolved over the years when it comes to your work and you know core values. I know once upon a time when uh, I was working at uh, NPR with you, we would talk about the idea of golden handcuffs. We have these you know fancy things. We have this fancy salary that you know we get to benefit from, and at the same time, that salary comes with a certain sort of chain around your ankle. Yeah, you or can't really go wrist. anywhere, but wow, what a pair of handcuffs. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Do you think we'll, um, do you think there are conversations that we can have to get us toward centering people and values and artistry more than money? Or do we just need to, you know, get rid of our landlords and our no, mortgage I've, offices I've, before I've, we can have those conversations? We've, we've, had, we've talked about this before, and I said that I think that your generation on has a chance. You said, but we're done. You, y'all are done. I, <laughs> Y'all have done what you can. (laughs) I just see so many people, you know, concerned about what, you know, uh, hitting certain milestones by what they've got. Yeah. And and I felt like I was trying to compete with that, you know, for a long time and got to the point where I'm like, I can't even afford the stuff that I'm, you know, I can't, I can't even afford the payments of the stuff that I'm, right. uh, You know, that I'm financing. Right. right? So So, had to quit all that. And really my watchword lately is just trying to be content with what I've got. You know? Same, same. And, you know, uh, th- these are conversations that aren't happening everywhere, certainly not in all art spaces, but Andy and Travis are doing everything they can to uh, really harness those conversations and affirm people in the best way they can working as a nonprofit, you know, within those conversations. So again, shout out to Andy and Travis for coming on Triloquy. So for this week's final movement, I want to 
touch on a tweet that I saw and a conversation that it has uh, uh, inspired among a lot of people. And, you know, my relationship with some of those more difficult conversations and where I see uh, this podcast sitting in those conversations as we begin to wrap up uh, uh, season three, I almost said movement three, season three, <laughs> and go into movement four to really try to k- keep this trajectory going. But uh, to get us uh, into the fourth movement and to uh, into the conversation that uh, we're going to touch on, I, I want to pull up a tune by Jay-Z. It's called The Story of OJ. It's from his album 444. It samples um, a Nina Simone performance that I think everyone uh, should know, uh, Four Women. And uh, we're, we're going to get into it. But I think this tune by Jay-Z is a, an appropriate tune to get us into it, considering the conversation we'll have. So here we go. The Story of OJ by Jay-Z with a sample from Nina Simone to get us into the fourth movement. Light nigga, dark nigga, faux nigga, real nigga Rich nigga, poor nigga, house nigga, feel nigga Still nigga My name is Still nigga I like that second one Light nigga, dark nigga, faux nigga, real nigga Rich nigga, poor nigga, house nigga, feel nigga Still nigga Still nigga OJ like I'm not black, I'm OJ. So let's set aside for now, you know, any visceral reaction or anything to, you know, his his use of the of the N word. Okay, we we, we've acknowledged that. So what do you hear out of those statements where he's saying I'll, I'll say ninja instead, light ninja, dark ninja, faux ninja, real ninja, you know, still ninja, mm-hmm. you know. What what do you hear from from that as 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 Jay Z is expounding on that? What do you think he means by that? Well, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like it, he's saying no matter what adjective you try to dress this up with, it, it's still a pejorative. It is still there are still people who will There's see the, you as that as that at the and, at the end of the day and all the negative things that are attached to it. So last week I'm scrolling my Twitter timeline um, and I see a tweet from it's Dana White that says can't trust black. This is a black man. Uh, he says can't trust black people who take pride in how well they fit, get along, or excel in white dominant spaces that routinely harm and dispose of their black peers. I thought about that Jay Z tune when I read this tweet and I thought about not only just the general idea of it, but how that conversation fits specifically within this whole classical music or classical space that we try uh, to, you know, work our way around in, in language and, and, and different things. There are folks who have made it way up there and a lot of these institutions it's also been proven time in and time out that these institutions don't really want all of us there, not even the compositions and the music aesthetics by our ancestors and the black folks living here today. They just want the black face on that thing. And there are black people, there are people of color who will ascend in these institutions and, you know, see themselves as doing something. But, you know, as as Jay-Z would say, you know, still ninja, right? Um, I don't want to specifically 
debate the idea of, you know, black people who take pride in how well they fit in into these predominantly white institutions. I definitely think that's a conversation that we could have when it comes to the arts and especially orchestras and and operas. But what I'm thinking about more, and as I mentioned, as we, you know, begin to wrap up season three here in a few weeks, that's the sort of conversation that is not only uncomfortable for someone like you for, you know, specific reasons, but uncomfortable for someone like me because it could be easily seen that I'm hating on somebody or I'm I'm one of the crabs in the proverbial barrel who's always tearing people down instead of celebrating them. But when I get down my thought paths as I think about things to talk about on this show, something that I've been returning to more and more these past few weeks is the idea, and we've touched on it a little bit, but the idea that the system is not built to have a way for itself to be dismantled, if that makes sense. And in, in, in the way I, I'm, I'm saying it, you know, there's the famous Audre Lorde quote, you know, the master's house can't be dismantled with the master's tools. And I feel like we're at a point in these conversations, these DEI, these uh, equity, inclusion and belonging, all of these things within art spaces, within uh, the classical industry, where we think there's a way to use the system against itself by infiltrating it, by uh, working for change from the inside out. And I don't personally believe that that is the most viable way forward. I'm not saying that is impossible. I'm saying that I just see a more outside-in approach as a more uh, viable approach. With all of that being said, I want Triloquy, moving forward as we uh, start to think about seasons ahead, I want it to be a space where we can really get into some of those conversations that other people aren't having. What do you think about the conversation of the system not having a means for itself to be dismantled or even changed. Mm-hmm. Am I am I reaching no, by I, thinking about it that way? No, I see what you're saying, and th- and this is where you and I diverge. And my and I would turn around and ask you the question: What is the answer then? Yeah. My question being, uh, the so at some point, pr- predominantly white organ uh, institutions are going to have to stand up for themselves. Yeah. And start making the hires to affect the change they say they want. And it's going to be messy, and and there's going to be mistakes. But that doesn't mean that you don't do it, though, right? I mean, because if nobody does anything, then there's no movement. From where I sit, there are certain, and again, before, before I say what I'm going to say, I want to frame this inside of this being a space where we can have some of these conversations and say some of these things and speak our truths in a way for them to be considered and thought about for us to explore a way forward, you know. So, so that that disclaimer. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is a certain adherence to the tradition, to the status quo that is required of all people, including people of color, to even have a chance at access to some of the uh, power positions within these institutions. And sure, I'm sure that there are some real agitators out there that are VP of something at one of these orchestras or at one of these schools of music, opera houses, maybe even radio stations. But at the end of the day, if the principal goal for a person is to maintain their position, you know, for the sake of their mortgage, for their student loans, car note, whatever, their ability to live, um, how can we see that as a way forward? It's hard for me 
to do that. And beyond, uh, like I said, like I was trying to get into earlier, beyond having an answer to that question, I feel like there has to be a space where we're having that actual conversation and really considering those things. We have Black orchestral musicians, uh, orchestral musicians of color, allies and accomplices who will, you know, swear up and down that representation is one of the ways forward. We have to get more people uh, of color, more women, uh, more uh, marginalized folks on stage, uh, more folks in positions of power, you know, on radio, whatever. But I just don't see that as a way forward all the time. Uh, sometimes I believe that we need to consider what they were, what they're doing down there, and uh, and we were talking about the San Antonio Symphony. What if that church, that First Baptist Church, became the new home? of the orchestra and the institution, as it were, just sort of crumbles and dies and the community makes their decision. Mm -hmm. What of Mary Lucia, who we talked about in the very opening, you know, she went to another public radio station and all of her fans and all of those people pulled all of their support and went elsewhere. I feel like so many of these institutions are really comfortable uh, and really sit in the fact that at the end of the day, it's all going to be fine. We'll get the money we need. We'll get the audience we need. We'll whatever. And there's no actual cost that has to come with some of the things that we see. You know, so going back to this tweet, you know, when Dana White says that he can't trust black people who take pride and how well they fit in into some of these institutions, I'm all the way there. And I spend so much of my time thinking about how to address that. I found that conversations like these are instantly dismissed as divisive or, oh, you're, again, that whole crab in the barrel thing. But if this space can't be a space where things like that are explored, what is the space for it? I, I don't see, think that I don't think that there are many out there. I see what you're saying. Two things. Number one, Mary Lucia would have a great Apple music show or a Sirius XM show. She, I, With I know, global listenership, right? much less and, local. And she has expressed, uh, she said she's got at least two books in her. So uh, th there's that part. But what does that mean between you and me, though? Because here I am sitting saying, I, I don't see any, any other way for me to move forward unless I advocate for bringing in more people of color to my organization. Mm -hmm. It's a reason why I think this is not just an echo chamber, but a conversation place. You know, folks who are familiar with this show, who have been listening for a long time, know where our two ideas sort of diverge, you know, and this is one of those places. I feel like if there were was a, a, a mass divestment of women and people of color from these institutions, we would really need to see some change. And maybe we would re-engage the well-established institutions because change has happened. But I think that is a way forward. Hmm. If every Black person in one of these major orchestras or in these uh, major opera houses said, you know what, I'm done. I'm walking away until y'all get y'all shit together. You would have a lot of orchestras who would be just fine because a lot of them don't have Black folks anyway. But I feel like everyone's cards would be on the table and we could hold each right. other more accountable when it comes to who we're choosing to support and who we're choosing not yeah, to support. I, I see where you're coming from. Again, though, I really want to make sure that this can be the place moving forward where we explore some of these ideas even deeper. One of my goals for uh, season four is to 
you know, spent a little less time with what is just going on in the zeitgeist and having some exploratory, thought-filled conversations that might inspire something in someone. Right now, from where I sit right now and, and how I feel in this moment, I feel like more Black people, more women, more people of color, more marginalized people within the well-established opera institutions, orchestra, organizations, radio stations, all of these things. I'm not sure if that can help all of us. It can help some of us. You know, seeing an all-Black orchestra on the Carnegie Hall stage this week affirmed someone and was a good thing for someone. Is that a good thing for all Black people, all people of color? Mm. Is that something that's going to help us all? And if that's not, what is going to help us all? How can the arts affirm every person struggling to pay rent or to find a community or to uh, be a part of the a broader world in, in some way? That's really what I'm focused in on now. It just seems mm. like um, diversifying orchestras is, for me, such a small part of the puzzle when I think about liberating a people and expanding my mission and my goals beyond the arts, but to a decolonized ecosystem to where when we get dressed up, we aren't necessarily centering a Western European uh, or Western in general aesthetic. Mm -hmm. When we talk about classical music, of course, but when we talk about food, when we talk about the way relationships roll, you know, the dichotomous way that uh, we treat relationships in in many ways is a is a Western construct, at least one that we have adopted that doesn't exist everywhere. I'm really trying to think of the ways where more of us can be engaged in this freedom work and in this liberation work. And that's not to say that it's not important on the arts front, because that's definitely a part of it. But I I just can't, I, I can't affirm anymore the infusion of people into these systems thing of it, because if it's not continued trauma for people who can't fit into those systems. It's the system fortifying itself by finding people of color, uh, women, marginalized individuals who do choose to fit into a certain way because of external factors, the biggest of them being capitalism. Um, I'm not here to answer that question today. That's not a one evening uh, answer to be explored. It's probably not a one year or a one season question to be explored. You know, the question of systems fortifying themselves through these DEI initiatives. But all I want to affirm is, you know, the people who ask those questions, the people who take that critical look and this as one of those spaces. Maybe we can return to this conversation a bit next week, but until then, I think that's enough. Thank you everyone for tuning in. <laughs> we'll see you then next week. 